Welcome to episode two of Patriotic Voices. Uh, this one's taking a little bit longer to get up just because of some technical difficulties I was having. Uh, user error a thousand percent with the mixer. So we got that figured out finally this evening. So we're, we're up and running again. So if this is your first podcast, welcome. If you listened to the first one, welcome back. If it is your first podcast, uh, I started this podcast and website to honor our uh, veterans. So if you're interested in taking a look at the blog and maybe uh, the pictures that are up, you can go to www.patrioticvoices.com. The podcast will be there, but po the podcast is also going to be over uh, on Apple as well as Spotify. So for those first joining again, welcome. Uh, the first couple of episodes has focused really on our early history with the nuclear program and how it led to the Manhattan Project and the continued testing that our veterans participated in through the 50s and 60s. Our atomic veterans spent a very long time helping build and test the nuclear program, but pretty much suffered in silence as they developed cancers and passed away without the ability to talk about it for many decades. And the civilians were also heavily involved in the Manhattan Project. So you know, a lot of us are familiar with it. You know, we've seen the pictures. We know uh, of the bombings of Japan to end World War II. But the ball really got rolling in 1939, just prior to Nazi Germany invading Poland, uh, where Albert Einstein, along with another uh, fellow physicist, wrote a letter to President Roosevelt warning him that the Nazis were, in fact, working to develop an atomic bomb and urging the Americans to really kind of push forward in that area. Einstein, ironically, was not given security clearance to work on the project due to his political leanings. The army chose not to give him clearance. So, and even those working on the project, they weren't allowed to consult with him. Uh, by December of 1942, you know, the formal, um, authorization to form the Manhattan Project was given. The initial research was conducted in Columbia University up in New York and you know it started there and then it eventually grew to more than 30 labs and uh, sites uh, across the U.S. as well as in the Pacific that impacted um, involved more than 130,000 people doing different aspects of the research and development. The full extent of the project wasn't known to the bulk of um, the civilians and even military that were involved, except for one man, uh, General Leslie R. Groves. He was the chief of the project, so he not only um, was responsible for bringing together the best minds to do the research and development, as well as build the facilities that they needed to make it happen all at the same time. So there were a couple of sites that were selected in the U.S., uh, one of which uh, was Oak Ridge, Tennessee. It was selected in 1942 with construction beginning in 1943. That location served for enriching uranium and it covered an upwards of 60,000 acres, which started off as farmland that had probably no more than 3,000 people living in that area. By 1945, there was probably well over 75,000 working and living in Oak Ridge, working on all aspects of the program. The second location that was selected was Los Alamos, New Mexico. It was also selected in 1942. Uh, construction began in April of 43, and they were really there for the design side as far as how we, we deliver the end result. 
And then we also had Hanford, Washington. They were uh, selected in January of 43 with construction starting like around August of the same year. And they were for plutonium production. So they built a full scale nuclear reactor to make that happen. And these locations, one of the things that was really unique about it is they were self-containing. Not because they had so many people there, they built dormitories, they had, you know, trailers everywhere, like the Airstream trailers for people to live in. They built schools, they built medical facilities to keep everybody, you know, to be able to just take care of their basic needs. They also had bowling alleys, theaters, skating rinks for activities. Uh, as well as like, swimming pools and stuff for summertime. Access was definitely restricted to each of these locations. Military conducted searches of any vehicles coming into the area. Phone calls were monitored. Mail was read. They oversaw kind of family communication, so that way to make sure that those that were living there weren't giving out information to uh, family members that were not participating in uh, the areas within Oak Ridge, mainly, and as well as Los Alamos and Washington. And if you think, if you think back to uh, the movie Back to the Future and some of the billboards that were up, they had a little bit of a cartoonish look to them back in the 50s as well as the 40s. And they had them up all throughout these areas. One could say, hey, buy war bonds, help support the war. And then another one's going to be, you know, it's going to be telling them, basically keep your trap shut do not talk to anybody about what you see here or what you do here so it was really really restricted and it was accomplished in such a short amount of time um, I mean you're building all of these locations at one time you're building the facilities to um, enrich the uranium and trying to figure out how to do it on such a large scale and do it to do it very quickly and just that it was taking, it just the development and construction was just crazy. And it, it's cool to see the pictures. So, if there's a uh, book that you'd be interested in taking a look at, it's called Historic Photos of the Manhattan Project. It's by Timothy Joseph. He's a PhD. It was published in 09. And it really is a detailed look into what life was like, mainly at the Oak Ridge facility and some at Los Alamos, um, just by the pictures that were taken then. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Oak Ridge produced the majority of the materials that was used in Little Man, which was the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Uh, then the plutonium that was produced in Hanford, Washington, uh, by the 1945, they were shipping like five days a week to Los Alamos. Um, and that was the plutonium that was used in Fat Boy that was dropped on Nagasaki. You know, by the time July 45 came around, they really were... Um, at the point to do a final uh, uh, initial test, which was the Jan uh, July 16th, 1945 Trinity test. Uh, the bomb, they called it the gadget. It was detonated on top of a 100-foot tower. Uh, after the detonation, it I would say 99.9% .9 of the tower was completely decimated. There was no evidence that it ever existed except for a small piece sticking out of the ground. The mushroom cloud from it uh, reached an upwards of 40,000 feet, and it was the equivalent of around 21,000 tons of TNT. It's a huge firepower for that initial test. And ironically, the next day, we started uh, and sat down at the Potsdam conference 
to you know ultimately try to get the Japanese to surrender. Um, that lasted through August 2nd. They obviously, we know they didn't surrender. And then obviously a couple of days after that, you know, the world really changed forever. We dropped Little Man on August 6th on Hiroshima. By the, it was dropped by the Enola Gay. And then on August 9th, Fat Boy was dropped by Boxcar over Nagasaki. And it's really difficult to identify the full extent of the deaths from the bombing and then the continued radiation exposure. But estimate, estimates for Hiroshima was more than 100,000 and around 80,000 for Nagasaki. But you got to remember that not only you have civilians impacted, you have uh, American POWs that were being held near those locations at the time that the bombs were dropped. So they would have been impacted. You also have the occupying forces that stayed there until 1951 to... Um, oversee the rebuilding and the cleanup and so forth. So you had a lot of people exposed indirectly that I'm sure aren't part of those numbers. So obviously 45, you know, us dropping those bombs ended World War II. And then about a year later, they did the Atomic Energy Act of 1946. And that's when the transfer of the ownership of the nuclear program went from the army over to the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. And then they officially ended the Manhattan Project in 1947. Oak Ridge was actually open to the public, and it's obviously open to this day, uh, in 1949. At that time, the nuclear facilities remained behind fences and gates and were secure, but the city was open to outsiders. And a number of the buildings are now gone, demolition happening, you know, probably early 2000s. So there's still some buildings left, but the biggest ones that existed at Oak Ridge are now gone. And a lot of information, you know, obviously they continued doing testing in the 50s and into the 60s. A lot of the information, though, started to finally leak out in 1976 and again in 1981. There was a report published in November of 1986 that was called American Nuclear Guinea Pigs, Three Decades of Radiation Experiments on U.S. Citizens. Obviously, that doesn't sound too well. Um, and that was really kind of what helped get the ball rolling. Um, Eileen Wilson, she was a uh, writer for the Albuquerque Tribune. So she did a series of articles that won the Pulitzer Prize where she was able to do you know, a really good analysis and detailed documentation for a number of people that were impacted um, by getting a hold of their medical records, by talking to their families. And this is really what brought to light the full extent of the testing that we did on Americans that was against their knowledge. They had no clue. They did not have the ability to give permission. It was just done to them. So President Clinton in 1994, in January, issued an executive order for the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. In October 1995, they released over a thousand pages in their report. And a couple of the key pieces that they detailed out um, really is disturbing to uh, really anybody. Um, one, they did uh, radioactive material was fed to mentally disabled children in their oatmeal as they tested it to see what the outcome was. You also had radioactive iron given as prenatal vitamins to impoverished pregnant women. And then 
there were prisoners that were secretly ingested with radiation or injected with radiation that led to severe birth defects. And so just, just the thought of that being done to someone without their permission and just without their, without knowing anything about it till sadly it was too late because many of them had passed away uh, by the time these articles uh, and the advisory committee was formed and issued their report. Obviously, you know, we had a lot of bad things come out of the nuclear age, you know, civilians being tested on, veterans, you know, being exposed with all of the additional tests that were done outside of just that initial test in New Mexico with Trinity, as well as the Nevada test site that had quite a few tests done in these uh, later decades. Uh, there was, you know, numerous tests done in the Pacific Ocean, which is some of the stuff that we'll talk about on the next podcast. Uh, but there were some good things that did come out of this development of the nuclear age. You had um, nuclear reactors developed for power generation. You had MRI machines. And, you know, as many of us know, there's radiation therapies for cancer that has saved people's lives. But some of the things that are still kind of in the news and relevant really today outside of this is the nuclear power plants. We've had uh, a near meltdown here in the States back in 1979, for those aren't the, that aren't familiar, with Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania. They had a pressure valve that failed to close, um, and they were really within a couple of hours of a complete meltdown that would have just been utter devastation. And right now we're all hearing in the news going, you know, circling back to 1986 with the Chernobyl accident in the former Soviet Union, which is now what's part of current day Ukraine. Um, since Russia has launched their war, they were, they had lost power and the ability to keep some of the um, remaining reactors cool to keep from having another issue. So they have since restored that. But then you also had Russian soldiers that were exposed to lingering radiation in the area because they weren't properly um, protecting themselves. I mean, there's a thousand square mile around the plant that is deemed uninhabitable to this day and will probably remain that way for our lifetime. And if you haven't watched it, um, I'd highly recommend taking a uh, watch of the HBO series called Chernobyl. It really did give a lot of information about the explosion and the aftermath to contain it. So it was really cool. And one of the last nuclear um, close to disasters that we have had was over in Japan at the Fukushima plant in 2011 after the earthquake hit and causing a lot of damage there that they're still dealing with the fallout from as they work to keep those reactors protected and from leaking any additional radiation. So there's a, a lot of activity that went on outside of or just really to make it happen for what we were able to do to end the end world war ii um but the thing that really hits home for me um and a lot of others is the testing that went on after that in the 50s and six, early 60s uh, for a real heavy period from 19 probably mid 40 50s to 61 62 at the latest they did a, a huge amount of tests, and those were predominantly in the Pacific Ocean. And that's what we'll kind of focus on next time. As I have guests finally on, uh, my brothers will be joining me as we really go through a lot of the 
really interesting details that we've learned here over the last couple of weeks about the testing that my dad participated in as he was uh, in the Navy and participated in what was called Operation Hardtack 1 in 1958. So they went through a number of nuclear uh, weapons tests that they were either near or par physically participated in. So we've got a lot of cool information on that as well as uh, a number of the other tests that really went on around that time. So I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you join me for the next one. It won't take as long to get the third one up and running. Um, so I do appreciate, you know, if you've listened to the first and you've come back for the second, uh, I hope you're planning on sticking around. Uh, have a great evening and we'll talk soon. Thanks. <laughs>